0: All right, welcome back to this commentary on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In this session, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. This is the second paragraph. In the second half of the letter, the first half of the letter, Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, really dealt with kind of the big theological portrait of what God had done in Christ. The second half of the letter, chapters 4 through 6 then, focuses on the lifestyle implications of that. How do you live that out? And what Paul has been talking about so far by way of implications is, you got to work hard to maintain the unity. That was chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, is that, uh, we have to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And so that's the first thing he wants us to do as God's people, to, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, is to preserve the unity. Well, chapter 4, verses 7 through 16, really is still about unity. And so 1 through 6, the first couple of verses, basically says, our essential oneness or our essential unity must be maintained. This section, 7 through 16, says our essential oneness involves diversity, that unity includes and involves diversity. Unity is not the same thing as uniformity, where we all look the same, talk the same, act the same, have the same function, the same role, that unity, oneness, involves diversity. So, 1 through 6 Here is our unity, and it must be maintained 7 through 16, but this unity is going to involve some diversity. In fact, what he's going to say is, he's going to say that Christ gave various gifts to the church so that the church could grow up in unity to maturity. So we've got different gifts, various kinds of gifts, and the goal of that is to actually help us grow In unity to maturity in Christ. Uh, And so the focus of this section is still on unity, but it explains that this unity uh, occurs with diversity. And the diversity is different gifts, different responsibilities, different roles to play, different jobs for each of us to do. And each job contributes to the growth of the church. So that unity flows out of Christ giving diverse gifts to be used in serving one another so that the whole body can grow to maturity in Christ as each one does its part. That's the idea. So each have a role to play. And it doesn't matter who you are or what your background is or where you've come from. You have a part to play in Jesus' kingdom. That Jesus has actually given each of us... Uh, a job to do, a role to do. We all are contributors to Jesus' great victory and to his kingdom that he's forming in and through his people. Now, one other general observation before we look at the details, and that's that this section is broken into three parts. Verses 7 through 10, where it shows us that Christ and his victory is the source of our jobs as Christians. Verses 11 through 17, the way our jobs or our gifts are supposed to function or work. And then verses 14 through 16 shows the result of all that, which is supposed to be maturity as each one does its part, as each person contributes to the growth of the body in Christ's likeness. All right, That's how it's all broken down. So let's take the first little bit, verses 7 through 10, where it shows us how Christ's victory is uh, ultimately the source of our various gifts and responsibilities within the church. Um, he says this in verse 7, Paul writes, But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. note out of this verse is that the very first word in Greek, because Greek you could have word order, didn't really matter. So the very first word in Greek is actually the word one. One. Why one? Well, because it connects with all the words for one in verses four through six above. And it reminds us that we're still talking about oneness. We're still talking about unity. We're still talking about how this unity plays out. Now we just learned that um, we each have a various gift. We have a role and a responsibility to play. So to each one of us, notice how specific an individual it is, each of us. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter your background. Doesn't matter whether you grew up in the church or not. Doesn't matter. Right? Like to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And what he seems to have in mind here is grace specifically to serve, grace that empowers you to to do a task, to contribute to Christ's victory and to Christ's work and to Christ's ministry and to Christ's kingdom. So to each of us. Grace was given. We were empowered and equipped for, for a task, for a role to play. Um, just like Paul has been given the grace to preach to the Gentiles, as he described in chapter 3, verse 8, right? like he describes his ministry as grace to preach to the Gentiles. Well, just like Paul had been given the grace to preach to the Gentile, so each believer has been given uh, grace to play a part too. Um, and so within the body of Christ, each member enjoys a share of God's grace so that they can contribute to what God is doing. Um, and notice that grace is given according to the measure. Of Christ's gift, like in other words, Christ is allotting it out. Is the idea that Christ is measuring it out? He's apportioned or passed it out as He decides. So each one of us has been given a share of of really Christ's bounty, Christ's treasure trove from His victory. But all the shares are different. What you're given is different from what I'm given. And what you're given is different from what someone else, like all of us have been given our share as Christ measured it out, apportioned it out, allotted it out to us. From there, Paul uh, goes on and he quotes from Psalm 68 in verse 8. And then in verses 9 and 10, he has what is really a parenthetical kind of, I guess, explanation of that psalm and kind of the point he's wanting to draw from it it just stirs up a lot of confusion for us. So let's just take a listen to what Paul says here, and then we're going to have to work through some details. So verses 8 through 10 says, Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. That's Psalm 68, verse out of there. And then he has a little parenthetical description, verse 9. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does that mean? Except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself also the one who ascended far above the heavens, so that he might fill uh, so that he might fill all things. Is that immediately clear? Probably not. Paul thinks he's clarifying things. Feels like he's raised more questions for us. So let's work down through this verses eight through ten. Paul says, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. That is drawn from Psalm 68, verse 18, which hails God for his victory and his triumph. That's what Psalm 68 is doing. That God has been victorious and he's triumphed over his enemies. And it's using the imagery of really the way an ancient victory and triumphal celebration would go. And so Paul draws from this description of God's great victory in Psalm 68 and applies it to Christ's victory here in Ephesians chapter 4. Just know it's not a true quote. Paul, in some ways, frees up Psalm 68 verse 18 to make it really flow neatly in his argument that Christ is the victor who has ascended on high and who gives Uh, who gives out of the spoils of victory, he gives gifts to his people. Um, The way it worked in the ancient world, this is really important so that we at least kind of get inside the picture that Paul is playing off of here, is in the ancient world, a king and his army would go out to battle. They would win some great battle. They would, right, they would Gather the, the spoils of victory, all the treas they would plunder the, the king's palace that they just conquered, they would plunder the other person's temple, and they would, you know, they would maybe, you know, gather all sorts of other wealth, and they would gather all that up along with some of the prisoners of war. They would return back to their capital city. They would parade the the captives through the the, the capital city. Oftentimes it led to at least some of the powerful prisoners of war being executed at the end. And as they were doing that, they might even dispense some of the spoils of war in this great parade, right? Throw out some of the coins and some of the gold to the, uh, the citizens lining the city. And so it would be this great victory celebration that our, our king has won this great victory and brought peace to the realm. That's sort of the, the imagery that Psalm 68 is playing off, saying that God did that and that he led captive a host of captives, that he led captivity itself even captive. And so the idea is God is victorious here in uh, Ephesians 4, Jesus is victorious, and so it's taking that and applying it to Jesus. Uh, when I said Paul frees this up to make it fit his argument, a couple things— that uh, a couple changes that he seems to make for a variety of reasons. The first is he changes you to he because he's in the midst of an argument and it makes sense. Oh, in Psalm 68, um, it literally reads when you ascended on high because it's a psalm and it's praising God for his great victory, right? So it's talking to God there in Psalm 68 when you ascended on high. Here in Ephesians 4, verse 8, it says, when he, because Paul's just freed it up to fit the flow of his thought. The more significant change is at the end. Um, in Psalm 68, when you ascended on high, you led a captive, a host of captives, and you received gifts from men. That's the way Psalm 68 reads. Here it says, and he gave gifts to men. Now uh, There could be a variety of reasons for Paul making that change. Some, again, it could just be freeing it up to fit his flow of thought. Preachers do this all the time today as they're explaining. They take the point of the text and they make it clear for their audience as they're explaining it in their context. It could be that Paul's doing that. It also could be that there actually appears to have been a text in circulation in the first century that did say gave, not received. The Masoretic text and the Septuagint, The Septuagint is the Greek version of the Old Testament. The Masoretic text is the dominant version of the Old Testament, Hebrew version of the Old Testament that we translate from today. But uh, one version of the Old Testament actually says gave. The Syriac Peshitta says gave, the Syriac Bible. There are actually several uh, Jewish commentaries, targums, uh, on Psalm 68 that say gave. And so it could be that there was a reading that said gave in the first century uh, that Paul just kind of took that reading and adopted that reading. could be that. Here's the thing. It doesn't really matter, because as I described kind of the cultural background, the way it worked is the king would receive gifts, the spoils of war, right? Like he would receive them. His army would gather up the spoils of war, and they would bring them to the king. And so he's received gifts, but very often in the royal triumphal procession back home in the capital city, he would give gifts. He would, They would... They would throw them out to the people so that people could enjoy some of the spoils of war themselves as a way uh, to celebrate their victory together. And so both culturally are true. Uh, They're sort of two sides of the same coin. And so In a lot of regards, it doesn't matter. The main point is simply to emphasize uh, that the victory and the spoils of war. And Paul maintains the main point of Psalm 68, and he takes that main point and applies it to Christ's victory. Jesus, by virtue of his resurrection and then exaltation, as Paul described in chapter one, far above all rule and authority, Jesus has won this great victory. He is now King of kings and Lord of lords, and we are all get to share in his victory celebration. That is the main point. That's the point of Psalm 68 in its context. That's the main point here as well. Um, notice also another little detail out of the quote, he led captive a host of captives, who are the captives? Some have suggested perhaps Old Testament saints and he's guiding them to heaven, but that doesn't really fit the cultural background, and it doesn't really fit Ephesians in a lot of what Ephesians says, probably best in Ephesians here, as well, really in Psalm 68, is that it's his enemies, that's the way these victories worked, you would, you would capture your enemies. You would parade them and shame them. Well, the parallel to what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 4 really is Colossians 2.15, written at the same time where Jesus triumphed over them and shamed them, brought disgrace on his enemies there in Colossians chapter 2. And that really is the point. And the point, don't get all lost and you know, the exact location. Don't get lost in exactly how that played out and the metaphysics of all that. That's not the point. The point is that Jesus is victorious. He is the King of Kings. He's triumphed over all spiritual and authorities and uh, all spiritual powers, and He has defeated them and He has put them in their place, right? That's the point. That is the point. Now, verses 9 through 10 is sort of a, an aside where he reflects on just the word ascended at the beginning of the quote, when he ascended on high. He's going to uh, offer some reflection on that, that he the way he writes it, he seems to think it there's just like, this is obvious, and yet it just raises tons of questions for us. All right, let's just be honest about that. But that, let's at least work down through what he says in verses 9 and 10. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended. Okay, so if there was an ascending, there had to be a descending. Okay, I'm, I'm tracking with you there. What does the, he ascended mean except that he also descended? It's the next phrase that causes real problems. Into the lower parts of the earth. What does that mean? Into the lower parts of the earth. Well, here's the thing grammatically, the lower parts of the earth could mean the lower parts, which is the earth the lower parts of the earth, meaning which is the earth. That's one way to read it. So the fact that he ascended would mean that he descended to the lower part, namely the earth. Or it could mean uh, the lower parts uh, of the earth with the idea of the underworld idea. Because in the ancient world, that was just a very common, like that was just sort of the, the way people thought. It was just part of the day. In fact, Frank Thielman in his commentary contends that Using this kind of language, the lower parts of the earth, it would be hard for um, to understand how Paul could use that language in his culture and not expect them to understand the underworld idea because it was just so everywhere prevalent this idea of that there was this underworld, this place of the dead, the realm of the dead. So, which is it? It's just not clear. It's not clear. And I've kind of bounced back and forth. Uh, grammatically, I, I, I can see what Thielman is saying that, man, in their culture, to use this language, what's the first assumption anyone hearing this text would have in their culture? Probably the idea of the underworld. Um, and yet there's been so much bad use of that idea of the underworld in Christian theology. There's been way too much made of that. That's like, oh, well, maybe he means the earth because certainly that's more pr- that's far more prevalent, far more prominent in New Testament theology, the idea of the incarnation, like Jesus descended to the earth and then ascended back into heaven. And that idea of the incarnation, that's far more important, far more prevalent in New Testament theology than any idea of going to the underworld. And so I've kind of bounced back and forth. It's just not totally clear. It's just not totally clear. Um, the idea of the underworld was such a well-established concept uh, cultural idea that in the literature and in song and in poetry and in popular consciousness that again, Thielman says that the ancient world was just awash with stories of descent to the underworld. And maybe Paul is just using something familiar again to speak of his victory over them. And so if, if that's what it refers to, then it would just be a way of saying that Jesus you know, by virtue of his death, he he even triumphed over the underworld. Don't get all lost in the details. Don't picture. Don't build whole stories and whole themes and whole doctrines on what that means. It would just mean, again, that we're talking about Jesus' victory. That's the whole context here. Um, if it means. Uh, the lower parts, which is the earth, then we're talking about the incarnation, the Jesus coming to earth. And the way Paul words this, he seems to think it's obvious that Christ's ascension implies some sort of descension. It's just not so obvious to us. And because of the ambiguity, Please don't let your imagination run wild. Create whole doctrines about Christ's visit to the underworld and what he did while he was there and what that means. Um, Be a little more humble. Be a little more respectful about the ambiguity and the uncertainty. That would be my encouragement. If Paul does refer to the underworld, Just keep the main point in mind. Christ's victory and Christ's exaltation as Lord of all. That's the point. He ascended. He's victorious. He's above all things. And as a result now, he's giving gifts to his people as part of his victory celebration. That's the context and that's the overall point. So don't, don't go crazy with all these crazy details. That's not Paul's point. Paul wouldn't want you to do that. So what does this expression mean that he ascended, except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth. And now verse 10 makes the point, he who descended is himself also the very one who ascended far above the heavens so that he might fulfill all things. Again, the emphasis is on the ascending, is on the victory, the exaltation, the kingship, the triumphing over all spiritual powers as king of kings and lord of lords. And that's the point. So don't miss that point for for the sake of some of the confusion or the ambiguity there in verse 9. Now, as a result of Jesus' victory, as a result of Jesus' ascending on high and filling all things, he gave gifts. That's where this whole thing started, right? Like a measure of grace was given to each one of us according to Christ's gift. He gave gifts. So verse 11 now is going to go into Some of the gifts he gave, and he focuses specifically on leadership gifts, some of the prime leaders in the church. And so he says he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. So these are some of the gifts he gave. He gave apostles, he gave prophets, he gave evangelists, he gave pastors, teachers. Right? These are some of the gifts he gave. It's not an exhaustive list, and for Paul's purpose, he seems to be focusing on leadership in the church because he wants to make a point about them preparing other people for ministry. Um, Let's talk about each of these terms real quick. Apostles. That's the first category of leader that he talks about. The first gift he gave was apostles. Um, There are three uses of the word apostles in the New Testament. Those broadest is a general messenger. The narrowest is those the twelve specific specifically commissioned by Christ plus Paul. That's a very narrow use of the term. And the wider is just those commissioned by the church to to represent the church. And you see all three of these uses at various places in the New Testament. Here, we seem to be talking about the narrowest category, true apostles, like the apostles, those who are the 12 plus Paul who were like the foundation of the church that Paul has talked about in uh, chapter 3 of Ephesians, particularly when it's paired with the next one, prophets. Prophets are spokesmen for God who made inspired utterances, and that's who the prophets are. Evangelists, um, this word doesn't show up a whole lot in the New Testament, but it comes from the same uh, word as um, like proclaim the good news, and so it's somebody who proclaims the good news. Uh, of Jesus, the good news of what God has done in Christ. They seem, the way it seems to play out in the New Testament, is they were primarily itinerant. They traveled places and declared the good news about Jesus. You see that, for example, with Philip in Acts chapter 8, and when you put that together with Acts 21. Now he's settled down in Caesarea. You see uh, Timothy being called an evangelist in 2 Timothy chapter uh, 4, verse 5. And so these were people who declared the good news about Jesus, and then you have pastors and teachers. Um, This particular pairing is actually linked by one article in the Greek, so it may be one group with two descriptors. It's not totally clear, so some have described it as like pastors and teachers, almost as like one group of people, pastors who are teachers or pastors who teach. It's not totally clear not a huge deal. It's pastors and teachers. And we know that there were there were groups of people that were teachers in the early church, and obviously there were pastors in the early church. Here's the thing we need to make sure we're really clear on, is that the word pastor in our language, we tend to use it slightly differently than the New Testament uses it. We tend to use it for the preacher in a church. And notice it's plural here. The word pastor in Greek actually is just Equivalent to overseer and elder in the New Testament, um, it actually comes from the word "poimain" and it means to shepherd. Could be used as a, for a literal shepherd who shepherds sheep, um, and so it's just a descriptive title for the elders and the overseers. They are the pastors, the shepherds of the church, um, and so this is the actually the only place in the New Testament where the noun pastor, Poimain is used. You can see all three of these words, overseer, elder, and shepherd, come together in Acts chapter 20, verses 17 and 28, where we're talking to the elders of the church at Ephesus, interestingly, and Paul calls them to those elders to act as overseers over the church and to shepherd the church of God. And so those three ideas all overlap in the New Testament. And so don't get confused by that. So we're talking about pastors and teachers, meaning elders and teachers in the church. So these are gifts given to the church. Now, what is the job or the, the work of the these leaders, these gifts here in the church? Well, he gave some, he says, verse 12, for, here's what they're we're supposed to do, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. To the building up of the body of Christ. And so these gifts, these people, these leaders are given specifically for the equipping of the saints for the work of service or the work of ministry. Equipping is used only here in the New Testament, the Uh, The verb of this is more common, but it's rare even in other Greek writings. And basically, it's used primarily in medical context for like setting a broken bone or straightening out a dislocated joint. It's the idea of putting something into proper working order. So pastors, teachers, um, overseers, elders, prophets, right? Their job is to put the church and put individuals within the church in proper working order, like to help people be able to function properly. And that functioning properly means that they're going to be doing the work of service, Uh, literally service work, ministry work, that they're going to be contributing to serving God's people, doing ministry in some way. Notice just uh, this is increasingly common for us, but we really need to think this through and make sure we're clear on this, that. The the leaders in the church, their job isn't to do all the ministry. Their job is to prepare the people to do the ministry. So that, he says, to the building up of the body of Christ. So everyone's got a job to do. Everyone's got a gift to do. They need to be equipped, trained, and unleashed to fulfill their job, to carry out their role and their responsibilities so that the, the body of Christ can actually be built up and strengthened and become what it's meant to. What will happen when the body of Christ is built up? Well, that goes kind of into the, the next one. So the leaders are given for the equipping the saints to the work of service, which will lead to the building up of the body of Christ, which uh, in, in, next will lead to the, notice, uh, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And so again, we're still focused on unity. And so as everyone is doing their part and contributing, the body is built up which will help us all really live out the very unity of the faith. We've already talked about one faith up above. This is the same idea. The unity of the faith that we have in Jesus. So unity of the faith and unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. So we grow in our knowledge of the Son of God. We grow in the faith about him and we get to know him. That's the idea. So unity of the faith that we understand more and more what it means to be a Christian. We understand the the worldview of of, of the Christian faith. We understand this like right? we're and we're unified around that and we have unity in the knowledge of the Son of God that we know him. We're walking with him. We have personal intimate knowledge of him. And so this unity is further described then here as uh, to a mature man, to a mature humanity. And so as, The leaders equip the saints. The saints carry out the work. Uh, The body of Christ is built up. We grow together in unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. That means we're becoming a mature humanity, all working together and being more and more like Jesus and carrying that out together. In fact, the mature humanity, he says, is measured after Christ. So to a mature man, that is, To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And so Christ is the measuring stick of mature humanity, both individually and corporately. And so now, as we all contribute to the body, the body corporately is growing together, and Christ is more and more being fleshed out in us, and we're measuring up more and more to who Christ is, to his wisdom to his character, to what he called us to be and do, to what he accomplished for us. And so we're growing into this mature mature humanity. Now, verses 14 through 16 then begins to describe sort of the ultimate result of all of this. And so it says this, as a result, as a result, we're no longer children. We're arriving at mature humanity. And so we're no longer children. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means we're not tossed, he says, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. And so one of the first results of, of the church and God's people being right, equipped for service, everyone contributing their part, all of us growing to maturity, is we're not blown here and there and tossed here and there. And he uses this imagery picture like a stormy sea, right? It's a stormy seacoast and winds and rough seas and wind blowing and things being blown all over the place. Well, we're no longer blown around and knocked around by every wind and wave of doctrine. What's doctrine? Teaching. That's all it is. Ideas. It's teaching. It's thoughts. And so as God's people grow to maturity... They are more stable in what they believe. They know the truth. They know the faith. They know Jesus. So they're more stable in that teaching. They're more stable in their doctrine and the ideas and the worldview they hold. Instead of being being blown around by every idea on you know that just comes across in every new thought and every right, like they're not blown everywhere. They're solid. They're stable. They're not led astray by the trickery of men. And by craftiness and deceitful scheming. We just need to be honest that there's all sorts of false ideas in the world. There's all sorts of false ideas that you know sometimes uh, show up with in a little bit of Christian dress or a little bit of theological dress, truth dress, a little bit of truth with a lot of falsehood, and all of a sudden people can believe it. Well, as we move to maturity, We can discern that. We're not led astray by that. We're a little more circumspect. We're a little more cautious. We're more solid. We're going to stick with what we know is true in Jesus rather than being tricked by people. Notice that the trickery of men and deceitful scheming. There are people who want to deceive. There are people who trick people and who lead people astray. Some of it is because they themselves are deceived. Some of it is because they just are tricksters. They just are deceivers and they're schemers and they want to use people for their own little game and their own little advantage. But maturity means we're not subject to that. We're actually strong enough to resist that. And so he says, we're not carried away by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But, verse 15, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all respects. Into him who is the head even Christ. And so when he says speaking the truth in love, he's describing the manner, the means by which we grow. And so one of the major ways we grow to maturity is by speaking the truth in love. Literally just truthing in love. We live the truth. We act the truth. We talk about the truth. We share the truth, right? We share the truth about Jesus with each other. We ground people in the truth about Jesus. Notice truth stands in contrast to deceitful scheming. Uh, It's in contrast to trickery of men. And so the truth about Jesus, the truth about who he is, the truth about what it means to live for him, the truth about following him, we just live that, we share that, we speak that, and we do so in love. We do so motivated by love. Where we want what's best for other people, we do so in a loving spirit, in a loving way. So we speak the truth in love, and as such, we are to grow up. Now we're growing to maturity. We grow up in all aspects into Him. We grow up into Christ. Like we 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 fixed our gaze on Christ. We're learning the truth about Christ. And now we know Christ is the goal. Christ is the measuring stick. And so we're growing up into Christ. Individually and corporately as a church body, we are becoming more and more like Jesus, who is the head, even Christ. And then verse 16, he says, From whom? That is from Christ. The whole body being fitted and held together by which every joint supplies. So we're, we're all knit together. We're united together together. By everything that Christ has given us, right? We're fitted together by that which every joint supplies. Um, And so the body now is all kind of like uh, fit together. Notice, according to the proper working of each individual part. This is this is the whole thing. Like God gave gifts. God gave each one of us a measure of Christ's gift, so that we could each do our part. So we each have something to contribute. And so according to the proper working of each individual part, every part contributing, every part playing its role, every part doing what God has enabled him and equipped him to do, each part uh, contributing in some way. And so now God's people, each living out their own unique contribution to his people, working together of each part causes, he says, the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And so as each part does its part, Uh, The the body grows healthy and strong and mature and it's marked by love, increasing love, because everybody's serving each other and contributing to each other and building each other up. And so now love becomes the character, just like love is at the heart of Jesus, love becomes the heart of the church. That's the picture that Paul has painted for us here of this unity in diversity. Um, And really one of the major things that means for you and for me is each of us gets to contribute to Christ's victory. Christ has won a great victory. He has ushered in and inaugurated God's ultimate great kingdom. He's brought the kingdom of God into this world. And now each of us gets to contribute to Jesus's kingdom and Jesus's victory. And he's given each of us a part to play. And so rather than looking on at what other people do and wishing we could do that too, Let's look at Jesus and just say, what did you give me to do? And let me just be grateful to contribute my part, whatever my part is. And let's do it for the good of all the people in the church so that the whole church can be built up in love, can grow to maturity in Christ. Whatever part we play, whatever role we play, whatever uh, passions and skills and opportunities Jesus has given us, let's live them out for the sake of the church so that the whole thing can be built up. And this means that church leaders, pastors, and teachers need to see their role as equipping God's people for the work. And that involves just a whole host of things. Obviously there's a whole emphasis on truth and doctrine here, so there has to be some teaching and making sure people really understand the Christian faith and Christian truth. That also means that we need to help facilitate people contributing their part rather than Holding on to all the ministry ourselves, we need to have open hands and release ministry and and see people as contributors in doing ministry. We need to call them into that and then prepare them to do that. We need to help shape their character as disciples so that they increasingly have more of the character of Christ. And so all of us together, leaders. Uh, in the church, pastors, teachers, elders, right? Um, All of us together, working together, each doing our part so that the whole body can build itself up in love. That's Christ's dream for the church. That's Christ's victory celebration in the church, played out as each one does its part.